Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chair, reached a plea deal last week with special counsel Robert Mueller over illegal lobbying on behalf of a pro-Russian Ukrainian political party. Perhaps no one is following this situation more closely than the folks over at big law powerhouse Skadden Arps, which is facing tricky questions after documents in the deal detailed the firm's role in Manafort's efforts. Later in the show, our senior legal ethics reporter, Andrew Strickler, will explain exactly what Skadden's facing. And then at the end of the show, we'll be joined by Law360 reporter Allison Noon. She's going to share with us what attorneys can learn from a recent chat Justice Sonia Sotomayor had with a group of kids. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. But no Alex Lawson this week. It's very sad. Alex, Alex was fired. Um, he, uh, you know, the, the higher-ups here at Law360 heard a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Silicon Valley and regulation. And Alex said, regulate me, daddy. Um, which, you know, they didn't they didn't love. And uh, he was summarily dismissed. So here's the thing. I, I love that as a joke, Bill. Yep. People are going to believe this. They're going to hear the beginning of you being like, Alex was fired. And suddenly I mean, Alex, Alex is going to get like tweets and emails like, where are you? It's fine. I mean, I don't care for the guy very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. You're going to take a vacation at some point, too. And your time will come back around. Well, we were going to we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for for Alex not being here. And I, I feel like we've played out the. Played out the joke on uh, doing impressions of each other, so I didn't sure. even, I didn't even, even though attempt I, this time. I, I mean, I really like that a lot. It's good. Although, I've actually gotten notes from people that we sound somewhat similar. Um, oh, uh, at one point, um, we had an episode of the show that was about um, the challenges facing disabled attorneys. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure that a transcript was available of the show for anybody who doesn't actually listen. Uh-huh. The transcriptionist mixed you guys up a lot. Oh, <laughs> I had really? to go back in and fix that manually. That's amazing. A ton. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, I mean, we're pretty, pretty, the, the profile is pretty similar. A couple of bearded white dudes living in Park Slope. I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's get on to another, uh, another white dude, Brett Kavanaugh. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> good segue. Just loving that. Yeah. There's um, a lot to catch up on. So uh, let's dive in, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's too fast of a story for us to like do as a main segment. We talked about how to do yeah, it. Yeah, let's give our usual disclaimer. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. We anticipate more <laughs> things will happen before the show actually goes live to, yeah. to all of our listeners. So just know that this is capturing a moment in time and sort of catching you up to that point. Right. So the process of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is President Trump's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the 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 confirmation process was sort of rocked this week when uh, a woman came forward with allegations that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her when he was 17 at a at a high school house party. So like like you said it's it's moving too fast to exactly know where we are but um but we thought it would be helpful to catch everybody up. Yeah, so oh, I I mean I we have to get into the allegations and all of this I guess. Yeah. So let's just rewind a little bit further back than that. How did all of this start? So um Anthony Kennedy retired after the the last term, and as we all have been following along, um, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to fill the spot. There were, you know, that's the stakes are obviously very high because that would tip the court from a more centrist to a to a pretty dyed in the wool Republican. So the the nomination process has been somewhat chaotic, and his uh, his confirmation hearings saw a lot of Democrats harshly criticizing him, and there were protesters in the room. 
But I mean, for all the noise, it was sort of sailing toward an eventual confirmation. The you know, the, yeah, the, Republicans are in power; they can push this forward, Supreme and Court, that's what was happening. Supreme Court nominations have become, if they were ever dictated by norms, they no longer are. They are a question of power politics, and if you can force someone through, you're going to do it, and that's sort of how it goes from now on. But we've um, reached a real hiccup in that right. trajectory. So, starting on the twelfth, um, which was, uh, I guess a week after his hearings had ended, um, word started to trickle out that there was this anonymous letter that alleged some sort of sexual misconduct involving Kavanaugh years back. And it was sort of, you know, you heard whispers about it. And apparently it had been sort of an open secret on the Hill for for a month or two. Um, and then I think just for context, um, Brett Kavanaugh's in his 50s, right? So he is. He's, he's These allegations were from when he was, what, Decades like ago. 17 Yeah, years and ago. they were from the, 19, the early 1980s. So um, it didn't stay anonymous for very long. On Sunday, the woman who made the allegations, Christine Blasey Ford, gave an interview to the Washington Post putting her name behind the allegations. So tell us, I mean, I guess we have to do this. Uh, what exactly was alleged that happened? So she told a more detailed story of the, you know, the bare bones thing that that people had heard um, at a house party in the early 1980s. And we'll just throw a, a, a allegedly caveat before sure. all this. So just to make it easier. Um, at a house party in the early 1980s, Kavanaugh and a friend were both, quote, stumbling drunk and um, they sort of corralled her into a bedroom, pinned her to the bed. Um, Kavanaugh groped her and attempted to pull off her clothing. And um, to avoid detection, they turned the music up. They closed the door. And apparently at one point, according to her retelling, she tried to scream and Kavanaugh put his hand over her mouth. That's all terrible. It's um, pretty bad, yeah. But what does Kavanaugh say about Kavanaugh it? Kavanaugh strongly denies the story. He, you know, it it wasn't, he didn't equivocate. He didn't say this was, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. And, and uh, you know, we shouldn't judge 17-year-olds. He said it did not happen. And then I know that all, uh, many reporters have reached out to the friend who was actually named, uh, that was the other person allegedly in the room. And he has said um, that he just doesn't remember the incident. Yeah, a guy named Mark Judge, who's sort of an interesting, I mean, not an interesting, sort of a strange character, uh, has written some books, wrote and, you know, wrote these books that are available on Amazon. They're sort of, they're like out of print, but one was like Tales of a Wasted Gen X Guy. Right. And so, you know, it's sort of, in terms of a court of law, like that wouldn't be evidence, but we, what this crazy sort of circus that we're all going through that, you know, it, it, it calls into question his character too. So it's just been, it's been a lot of that stuff where, we're, you know, we're digging into this story in a very non-legal and non-scientific sure. way. Well, so we had already had the hearings for Kavanaugh, then all of this happened. And I imagine, and I think we've all seen this sort of playing out, things got crazy on Capitol Hill. Yeah, things, um, I mean, as you would expect. Um, so on, uh, the vote was scheduled for today. For Thursday, the September twentieth, um, and that would have voted him out of the Judiciary Committee and sent his nomination to the full Senate for approval. Um, the minute the story broke on Sunday, it became pretty clear that that was not going to happen. Right, that there was going to have to be some delay to deal with this, and many Republicans sort of, um, you know, quickly came out. And I think it was Kellyanne Conway was one of the early quotes that was like, "This person should be heard, and we should." process these allegations and not just you know so it, 
early on it was it was everyone was really behind the idea of of hearing her out and it seemed somewhat bipartisan but then it quickly got down to this idea of how she would be heard and how quickly she would be heard and that as pretty much everything else in DC split the the you know split the party so on monday an attorney for blasey said that she would be willing to testify before the senate to tell her her side of the story Kavanaugh quickly said he would be willing to do the same and thing and then that set up a weird dynamic right where um it started to feel to some observers that that would be very like he said she said yeah I because mean, there's no there's been no with... vetting of any of these allegations and it would literally just be the two sides telling opposing stories i mean and which is an interesting sort of uh, reflection of the deeper problems that we deal with with responding to and reporting on and everything else with allegations of sexual misconduct it's it's a a lot of the time it is two people just right. you know telling a different story but i mean uh, throw that into a the, the context of a senate judiciary this hearing is as high profile as it gets where everyone's going to be grandstanding and it's you know it's not a they're not always the most substantive situations sure. it's it's so immediately grassley um chuck grassley the the chairman of the committee set this time frame in motion where she would testify on Monday, whether that was before the the full committee or whether it was like a closed um, door session, closed door session, or whether she wanted to sit down with neutral people or. But the the key was that it was going to be on Monday. That's where the disagreement started. That the Blasey and many Democrats say no, this should be investigated by the FBI. Um, that that it that's the kind of investigation that you that this sort of situation warrants that putting this woman in front of you know a lot of this is colored by the story of Anita Hill of the Absolutely. Clarence Thomas hearings 20 years ago or 25 years ago that um and trying to avoid those kind of mistakes of turning it into this circus that's extremely insensitive to a person who is out there talking about a, a horribly traumatic moment um so, so where did we leave this? Um, what did um, this woman say she's willing to do in terms of testifying or not? Yeah, it's moving fast today. The you know this morning, I think people would have told you that she was not going to testify. Um, but the the latest thing is that she's her attorney has put out a statement that said that she would be quote would be prepared to testify next week end quote so long as senators offer quote terms that are fair and which ensure her safety end quote because. She has received death threats. Um, she feels uh, like her safety is threatened. So yeah. it's a really hard situation. Um, this is a really tough one. So what are we anticipating is going to happen next? I mean, I know that's a little bit of a, yeah. hey, Bill, look into the crystal ball. <laughs> Tell me with this insane story yeah. that is so fast moving, what's up? Right. But I do kind of want to project at least a little. So we don't know. I mean, um, th th there could be a hearing on Monday or there could not be. Her position apparently in this latest statement is that Monday, regardless of how we do this, is too soon and that th there needs to be a more thorough and methodical investigation of what's going on. So whether or not Republicans agree to that, I mean, the Republican line now has become if we don't do this Monday, we gave her a fair shot to be heard. And so they will just we'll vote, vote for, without, without? It. And, and even right. these Susan Collins and, you know, Bob Corker and other folks who are more centrist have sort of said that. So you have to imagine the, the even hardline people are are even less willing to, you know, to mess with that Monday deadline. This so. is a really tough one because it just feels like it is speeding through like a bullet train. Yeah. This whole confirmation process. Well, and it's it's super interesting. We've talked about it on the show 
a lot this like national you know moment we're having over the I guess it's been about a year now since the Weinstein stuff broke that, yeah you know the Me Too movement whatever you want to call it it's been this this reckoning um, and this feels sort of like this like climactic crescendo to it that that you know you have the the same dynamics a, an extremely powerful person um, allegations that you know the, the all the all the elements of of a me too story are playing out here in terms of the you know a story of power and violence and sex and it like and how we deal with that and how we respond to them but it's playing out in real time on a national stage where the stakes couldn't be higher that it's this lifetime seat so it feels like this 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 chapter in the story of what we've been going through over the last year but but really really magnified Bill, I would love to segue into a completely separate topic, especially as the woman on this show, but we're going to need to stick with allegations of impropriety because I've, we've got a big story that we had as an exclusive here at Law 360. Yeah, the, these kind of things popping up in the legal industry is also uh, something we've been following for a long time. We have, and we've talked about it a lot on the show, and we have another big one. Um, recently, one of our senior employment reporters, Braden Campbell, had the exclusive reporting that Manat Phelps and Phillips was facing some pretty stark allegations about gender inequality. So we've seen these kind of cases a lot, uh, but what exactly are the allegations in this one? So an ex-Manat partner, Rebecca Tory, filed a sex discrimination and retaliation charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Mm-hmm. And she said the, the firm cultivated what she called a good old boys culture where male senior attorneys can they compete to bed female subordinates Oof. and leadership systematically suppresses women's pay so it's pretty much as bad as as it can get in and these allegations the timing what was the timing with the the filing so the charge was dated on April 18th but that's um something that is usually private and we happen to obtain it here at Law 360. Right. It was filed with both the EEOC and also California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing. So it's a very initial step in one of these these proceedings. And now is she still with the firm currently? Because that's a dynamic that we've... We have discussed that before um, on the show. She is not. She says that the firm actually forced her out in March of 2017 yeah. after she complained to the managing partner of the firm at the time, William Quicksilver. Yeah. So, okay, so what what are like the facts here? What's the story that... So this one basically has two prongs. The mm-hmm. first is that she says the firm discriminated against her through um, the subjective compensation structure. And she says it's just designed in a way that skews things in favor of malpractice. It's partners. like a thing, it's a thing we hear all the time that they're, you know, that it the, is. It's, it's the devil is in how it's executed. Right. It's, right. So she said this one was um, just so arbitrary that um, people at the firm are assigned to um, a scale. It's like a one to six scale. Yeah. And it would get you bigger bonuses and other in, mm-hmm. uh, other compensation. And she said that women were always put um, at the low end of that, Yeah, no matter what they did, while men were distributed more evenly throughout the range. Mm-hmm. So some men were still at the low end, but they were evenly all the way up and down. Yeah. She says in her case, the firm paid her hundreds of thousands of dollars less than several male partners, despite her generating more revenue for the firm. 
So, yeah, okay, stuff. so there, that was the first prong. What's the second prong? The second prong is even worse. Let's just get into it. Um, she says the pay structure was just a symptom of a broader firm culture that devalues women. Mm-hmm. She says women were basically treated as sex objects in the workplace. Yeah. They were rewarded for, quote, agreeing to sexual relationships with Manat's male leadership. Ooh. I know. I mean, I... It's tough to talk about this stuff, guys, but I like the idea that we're at least shining light on allegations that are out there. It sounds like it's it sounds like it's from the fifties. Like it's it's very um, very Mad Men esque to me, where yeah. you have sort of all of these gross games about the women in the workplace. So let me just run down some of the things that were in this mm-hmm. in this charge. It was a lot. She says that the firm intentionally sought to hire the most attractive women, openly engaged in sexual relationships with female subordinates, that that was rampant. She says two division chairs would actually compete to be the first person to have sex with a specific female employee. She said one division had adjusted the performance review to secure a larger bonus for a woman that he was having an affair with. Yeah. Um, She also just caps it off by saying like the firm never corrected any any of this inappropriate Mm -hmm. behavior that they, uh, when they found out about certain things that either it would be settled quietly without notifying all of the partnership or sometimes um, accusers would be intimidated by people in the firm so that it would go away. And then there was a kicker that really just kills me. And this is not the most um, uh, egregious allegation included in the complaint, but I just really hate this detail. She says that when she raised these concerns over all these problems, a member of the board at the firm suggested that she, quote, stop dressing so frumpy. I know. I feel gross even saying it. It's gross. So I have a sense of what the answer is going to be, but did the firm say anything in response to this? I mean, so Braden broke this story, right? He did. On Friday? Yes. So a week ago or six days ago. But um, did they? I, what did they say to him when he reached out? Um, no, the firm did not respond to us. So Manat wouldn't go on the record. Mm-hmm. We also tried reaching out to Quicksilver, um, and he also wouldn't comment. The woman involved here um, referred us to her attorney, David Sanford, and he also declined to comment. And it's just, um, there's a couple things I think that's worth noting about that. I want to be clear that all of these are allegations. Yep. I don't want anyone to take away from this that this is a done deal. It's all allegations, and the firm hasn't formally responded. So they may tell a completely different story. Yep. Um, they All of the people involved may well be tight-lipped because it's at such an early stage. Mm-hmm. This document is a charge document with the EEOC. And the way that works is it's basically a formal complaint to that agency. They um, review it themselves, and either the EEOC can then um, pursue a suit based on that charge, or they can give the person who brought it to their attention um, what's called a right to sue letter. And it just basically frees them up to sue on their own. So it's a really, really preliminary step. Sure. Um, It's also worth noting, though, that Manat in June said that Quicksilver was going to step down as managing partner next year. Mm-hmm. And he's being replaced by their privacy and data security practice chair, Donna Wilson. Mm-hmm. So it will be a woman in charge yeah. next year. Yeah. agreement reached last week by former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort was quickly buried by a flood of Brett Kavanaugh news, but it's still front of mind for big law firm Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom. 
That's because documents filed by prosecutors raised new questions about Skadden's involvement in Manafort's lobbying work on behalf of a former Ukrainian president, and at times seemed to contradict the firm's previous denials. Here to discuss is Law360 senior reporter Andrew Strickler. He's been covering the Skadden-Manafort link for months. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. We always love having you on the show because you make these really complicated things um, really easy to understand. So, a many-time guest. Yes, that's right. So set the scene for us with this one. Why are we talking about Skadden in the midst of all this Manafort news? Well, Skadden and Manafort had a relationship going back a long way. Manafort was involved in hiring Skadden all the way back in 2011, Uh, for an interesting piece of work. It wasn't legal work. Uh, They were hired to do uh, research and analysis about a political, politically tinged, we'll call it, prosecution in the Ukraine. Uh, And it was a research project, essentially. A bunch of lawyers got together and looked at this prosecution and wrote a big, long report about it. What has happened, though, is that in the uh, year since, and certainly since the Mueller investigation began, it's become clearer and clearer that Paul Manafort commissioned Skadden himself to write a report that he felt was going to benefit the uh, political goals, the public relations goals of his extremely lucrative client, the ex-prime minister of the Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. Um, that has become a part, one of many parts of the accusations against Manafort uh, as far as lobbying for a foreign government without being registered in part, in part for uh, money laundering, money that he allegedly reaped from Yanukovych, many, many millions of dollars. Right. Um, and and so on. And and, and Andrew, we, we heard about this. I, you know, this is all sort of ringing a bell because we had you on months back to talk about this guy uh Vanderswan at at that was a Skadden attorney and he was indicted um how does he sort of link in with this story that you're telling well Vanderswan was a junior member of the Skadden team that wrote the report and was sort of the point person in Europe between the firm and the Ukrainians uh Vanderswan is uh Russian speaking uh, and has some connections in that part of the world. He was indicted for lying to the Mueller investigators about contacts with Manafort's partner, Rick Gates, as well as discussions with uh, people at the firm when he was asked about this report. The investigators were interested in Skadden's role and what they had put into it, and when they went to Vanderswan. Uh, he lied to them, basically, and lied to them about having very recent conversations with Gates about the report. So what um, did the firm say about all of this? That it's been hanging over their head, it sounds like, for years since the report was written. Then they start to get some pressure because of the, the inquiries into Vanderswan. Did the firm just deny everything? The firm has maintained for years and years that the report was written uh, as an objective piece of legal research. It was done without undue influence by the Ukrainians or the subject of the prosecution that was at issue in the report. Uh, And they have said repeatedly that they understood going into this work that there were possible lobbying implications because there certainly there was uh, concerns 
those in the West and in Europe about the prosecution that Viktor Yanukovych wanted this report uh, uh, written about. Um, and so with that said, the firm has always said we anticipated this, this the potential for right. lobbying implications, and we avoided crossing any lines very deliberately. But so now we get to but now we get to this week and and the you know the Manafort strikes the steel it was last Friday um with the Mueller investigation and Scadden's name comes up again so what you know what were the, how did, why why are we talking about Scadden again in the context of of the plea agreement well it's interesting because the plea agreement the documents filed in the Manafort plea agreement um point directly to Skadden and the authors of the report, uh, as well as other groups that were working for Manafort, as more than passive players. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they're saying that Skadden and others uh, knew that the work that they were producing uh, was going to be part of Manafort's overseas lobbying, and they went ahead with it anyway, even though they had not registered as foreign agents as required by law. So that, that cuts against what they've been saying for, you know, it, it at least calls into question some of the explanations they've given, you know, over the years, right? It does, and it goes further than that. The indictment also says that Skadden had been actually hired outside of this work for this report all the way back in 2012. The indictment states that the firm was actually retained by these Ukrainian prosecutors in relation to the very prosecution that Skadden was supposedly writing this objective, right. uh, hands-off kind of report about, which has never been disclosed before. It's not at all clear in the indictment uh, what the exact nature of that work right. was. And but I think it definitely calls but, into but question... there's allegations yeah. there that um, they were paid a big sum of money to do this work. Well, that is true. The, the prosecutors are saying that Skadden was paid $4.3 million mm -hmm. for, to write this report. Now, it is a big number... On the other hand, uh, the people they had working for it are very well-paid lawyers. Uh, there was a, quite a few people involved. Right. Uh, it's a very detailed report. I don't think the number itself uh, is, is quite as out of line as, as it might look on first blush. The interesting thing, though, is that prosecutors are saying that the money that Manafort funneled to the firm to pay for it was laundered money, as is so much of the other money that he was apparently getting from his Ukrainian client. And what's so what's so interesting about this whole situation is that, you know, our, our big law listeners will know who Skadden is. But Skadden, it's a it's a very important law firm in, yeah. in our world. It's so it's you know, it's it's not some little operation here that we're talking yes, about. It's, it's not a fly by night. No, firm. it is the cream it's of the crop. Established. Yeah, right. absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the most prestigious uh, big law firms in the country. Right. And the lead author of the report, Greg Craig, is an absolute DC star. Right. He's a very, very politically connected guy. He's been around a long time. He worked in, he was friends with Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton. He worked and represented Bill Clinton in his impeachment trial. Right. He also worked in the Obama White House. He was a partner at Williams and Connolly for many years. Um, he is a, uh, you know, he's a big name, and he's very closely uh, associated with uh, the sort of Democratic power base in D.C. Um, and, so it uh, sounds like he's a real power player, Andrew. Um, I'm sure he had something to say about the developments over the past week. 
Well, no. He, uh, well, through his attorneys, he very clearly denied having uh, done any work that implicated the foreign agent lobbying registration. Right. Um, and simply said that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, there raises a lot of questions because that certainly contradicts what the uh, prosecutors are asserting in those Manafort filings. So now, it's a, if you come out and you make a statement like that, I mean, it seems like you're you're concerned. I mean, is he concerned about about criminal charges himself? I can't imagine that he is not concerned about where this is heading. The language of the indictment doesn't leave a lot of gray area right. for uh, for saying, well. There was lobbying work done by people at the firm who knew what they were doing, and they should have registered, period. Now, Greg Craig has not been charged. Skadden, nobody else at Skadden other than Alex Vanderswan has been uh, charged with anything. So Mm -hmm. we don't really know where it's going, but the language of that indictment is pretty damning. Well, so and and I think that you mean I mean does this raise questions for Skadden itself as as the the firm itself um, in terms of not just individuals but the the entity? Well, it's interesting because again we we don't know what prosecutors know or think they know about what is going on there, but the language of the indictment does point to players beyond Greg Craig. Plus, you have Alex Vanderswan, who's already admitted to some criminal liability in relation to the same report. So I think it is a big, big problem, uh, again, where it winds up going in terms of Mueller investigation. Uh, this part of the case has been referred to the Southern District in New York. So uh, it's, it's unclear, but there is concern out there, and certainly for, for Greg Craig. Andrew, it's pretty clear this is going to keep you really busy, so keep covering it for Law360. People can check us out at law360.com, and we'll have you back on to talk about it again. Thanks for having me. Supreme Court term about to get underway, Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor popped by the Brooklyn Public Library last week to chat with a group of kids. There for the event was our reporter Allison Noon, who joins us in the studio. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for having me. So this is a fun event. I, I want to hear uh, about the scene. Yeah, why what was, was it like in Brooklyn? Why was Sonia there? Well, she was there because she recently published two new books targeting... Because uh-huh. um, she's not busy enough with her <laughs> right, day job. Yes, exactly. Well, it is, it is um, kind of uh, rare for a sitting justice to publish a book, and it yeah. doesn't happen every year. And mm-hmm. she just published two, uh, a young adult and a picture version of her previous memoir. So it's like things about her life story then, right? Yes. So uh, what she wanted to talk to kids about was having type 1 diabetes and her family struggles um, Mm -hmm. up until uh, she went to college and perseverance. um, How was the the turnout for this thing? I mean, we obviously would be interested in this, but I don't know if all the Park Slope kids were uh, really 
well, to go see. I mean, our, our producer, Steve, has already said that he's sorry he missed it. So, <laughs> Well, about 500 people were wow. packed into the Brooklyn Public Library lobby, and they had to cut off the admission. Wow. The, the line around the outside of the library, a lot of people were sent home. Call her Sonia sellout. <laughs> <laughs> this makes perfect sense to me, though, because I am also a little envious that you were there, Allison. It sounds like it was... Just it sounds like a really uplifting thing to hear her talk about sort of her life and lessons and what kind of stuff was she telling the kids? What what lessons can I take away from this? <laughs> it was probably a departure from what she otherwise does, right? Because yeah. it was a very happy moment sure. for her to say, you guys can do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that I heard her say that several times to to not just um, to she she said that specifically to young girls and to just every young person sure. that you should do whatever you want to do. So what were some of the highlights from like, I mean, did she tell stories or was she answering questions or? She, oh, she read a little bit from her book, mm-hmm. but she also, one of my favorite parts was when she imitated the Puerto Rican frog called a Koki. She <laughs> so there was about a thirty second time, and and I have a short video of the Supreme Court justice going Koki Koki. That is, and she got the whole audience doing this frog noise for a short minute, and it was wonderful. That's amazing. I can definitely see why this is a standout well, moment that you want to talk about. It's just so unexpected for these very revered justices to kind of let their guard down a little. There's a lot of discussion about whether there should be more video of, of what's going on in the Supreme Court. Maybe when you see, hear things like that, maybe, maybe, that's, <laughs> what, maybe that's why. Yeah. Well, I'd love to see more of it, so there should definitely be video. Another highlight, though, was when a little kid asked her where she sits Mm -hmm. in the courtroom. And she said, you know, we all have assigned seats and I've been able to move up a couple of them. But one time she said, I sat in the chief justice's seat and she said that he has a really good view, but she does not want his job. (laughs) Wow. So some some news to, uh, you know, that she. (laughs) That's also such a little like it's like a nice little mic drop. Like, yeah, I've tried it out. Don't worry about it. Not for me. Not for me. That's really good. So, Allison, you're a reporter that was there. Did you get to ask any questions of the justice? I was not allowed. I tried to to sneak a, a comment or question card into the pile and <laughs> was blocked from that. And then I, I tried You're a few to... years too old. Yes. Oh, so it was only kids that <laughs> got was, to ask the question. It, it was only kids. Oh, that dashes my dreams then. But um, it sounds like this is a really fun event. Thanks for coming on to tell us all about it. Thanks. That'll wrap up our show for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Andrew Strickler and Allison Noon, and our contributing reporters, Braden Campbell, Michael McInerney, and Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to hear more about anything we've talked about in today's show, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you like us, leave us a review. Thanks, and join us again next week. Someone asked me the other day, or said the other day, Supreme Court justices don't wear high heels. (laughs) And I 
Ajutați-vă să vă mulțumim! 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 Ajutați-vă să vă mulțum